my, when I say what I do in philosophy, I mean I'm actually running simulations right now, um, which is a weird thing for philosophers to do. Mm-hmm. But it's um, something that I got introduced to through this department, and it's actually great as a person trained in software engineering. I can code up these simulations, try to get them as efficient as possible, and do things that, that people who aren't software engineers a- try, to, try to answer questions or clarify things um, that people who aren't software engineers have. Uh, uh, haven't been able to do. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Today we'll be talking about philosophy of science and Stuxnet, as well as artificial intelligence and intelligent systems. If any of these topics interest you, feel free to drop comments and likes. Let me know what you like listening to, and thanks for coming along to the ride, as always. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Talks with Toe. Um, today, I have a very special guest with me. Jack Van Drunen, is that how you pronounce your last name? That's really good. I'm impressed, unless Josh told you that's how they pronounce it. No, I, oh, okay. I, I, I assumed it was Van Drunen, but I mean, yeah, you never that's, know. That's very good. Cool, okay. So Jack is, a, I guess you would say, a friend of Josh. <laughs> I, I would say I'm a friend of Josh. I'm a very close friend of Josh. <laughs> he talks a lot about you, so um, very highly, of course. Um, but So give me a little bit about your background, and also he told me a little bit about where you're hoping to go to in terms of, you know, grad school stuff. So we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, so um, I am a computer science major here at UCI. I'm a fourth year. Um, And my specialization is in intelligent systems. I was exposed over the years to some stuff in outside of the field of computer science and social science and philosophy um, through the honors program here at UCI and their curriculum. And I ended up getting involved with research with a professor in the uh, Department of Logic and Philosophy of Science. One thing led to another. Now I'm about to accept an offer for the depart- a PhD in the Department of Logic and Philosophy of Science. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of pivoting outside of my typical field uh, or stereotypical uses of computer science, mm-hmm. but into an area where I think that I can apply my skills, my computational skills, in ways that are useful and needed for their field and which I find really interesting. Okay, so for people who are maybe listening to this and aren't, you know, as aware of what, um, you know, the philosophy of science is, like, I know what it is, generally speaking, but it's not my field as well, but, like, how would you describe that as a field? Like, what are you studying? Yeah, so I think, like, scientists do two main things. They go out and collect data and um, they figure out how to build a theory about the world from the data that they've collected. And philosophers of science basically do those things, but introspectively. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, you care more about the ways in which scientists are going about collecting data, um, the ways in which data sometimes doesn't determine what a theory about the world, what what the world actually is mm-hmm. when you try to dig beyond it, beyond your just your measurements of things in the world. Um, and you see that in like, for example, in physics today, um, there are a lot of unsolved problems. And you might think, well, here we have the most advanced particle accelerators mm-hmm. and um, maybe mathematical tools and so many experimentalists doing good productive science in the lab why don't we know what dark matter is why don't we why can't we unify 
quantum mechanics and general relativity into a single theory of everything? And the answer is because we, it's not necessarily that we don't have enough data. We probably don't have enough data. But we also, do, we also haven't kind of broken through the barrier of how do we fit all of this information into a coherent picture of the universe. So that's one thing that philosophers of science do and a lot of people in um, theoretical physics, or at least some people mm. in theoretical physics, ended up going to philosophy departments um, over the past, say, half century because of the, the mainly experimental push in physics departments in the university. Mm. Um, and so if you wanted to be thinking about the big questions, right? Um, as probably a decent number of people go into physics secretly kind of do want to be doing, right? You end up, if you can, getting a job in a philosophy department and doing philosophy of physics. Um, but in reality, most philosophers of physics are still are physicists. They're just mm. kind of approaching things in a different way. Um, there's also a lot of work um, in the area of values in science, which is basically here we have these scientists who say the world is one thing, but sometimes the public doesn't jump on board with what scientists are saying. Like, I mean, in, in the United States, big issues are like climate change, mm -hmm. evolution, perhaps, yeah. um, things like that. And, and so you wonder, well, if every, all these smart people think the world is the way it is, why aren't people coming, jumping on board with it? Mm -hmm. And so another big part of philosophy of science is, and sort of philosophy of science conceived as philosophy of science instead of philosophy of physics or biology or something, deals with the interaction between, among scientists, but also between scientists and the public in sort of the, the public discourse. Yeah, so that's very interesting because I think um, that's kind of like part of the reason I started delving into like this podcast series mm. instead because I realized that um, there seems to be like it's not like a very unknown thing but there is a disconnect between communication within the academic realm so to speak and I guess you would say the general populace and I think everyone knows that but um, and a lot of people have tried different things to like you know address that right. fill that gap or that cap whatever you want to say um, but there is still just like this underlying like um disconnect because I think part of it is there is disagreement on different topics within the scientific community and yeah. even within the scientific community there are gaps between like for instance the philosophy department and like the more what people traditionally see as STEM sciences um, mm -hmm. how do you see that as like um, maybe contributing to it like what mm -hmm. are maybe some of the barriers between that mm -hmm. um, communication so to speak also yeah um, the I think there is a tendency for people to interpret. So I, you know, I'm a Christian. I interact with a lot of people who don't like sort of any anything that reeks of old of an older Earth than like mm -hmm. ten thousand years. Um, and I don't know where you stand on the issue, mm -hmm. um, but and and I'm I might not I I don't necessarily want to get into where I stand on the issue <laughs> because it's it's still such a controversial issue. Some things you just sometimes <laughs> some things you just stay away with unless you actually have the time to unpack mm -hmm. yeah, unpack yeah. it. Um, but I think there is a good example because I try to stay kind of up to date on the discourse in the creation the the young Earth creationist mm -hmm. sphere. Um, you see a lot of. People will interpret disagreements about small things 
relatively small things in the science, in the mainstream science and say, well, see, science doesn't know what, like, scientists don't even know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so why should we trust them? And I think that that's a bit of an overreaction. Um, I think that it's easy, it's, it's an easy jump to make kind of conceptually to, from like, well, these people can't agree on their theory. So why should we buy into the theory if even the people mm-hmm. who claim to hold it actually disagree on sometimes fairly deep, like, you know, fairly big details mm-hmm. of, the, of the theory. But I think that's not really a good way of, of approaching it, even though it's, it's, it's tempting because, um, you know, science is about investigation. And when people are investigating theories, you know, sometimes you, you kind of have to reckon with things that challenge theories, but in ways that are construct that can be used constructively to build on top of existing theories mm-hmm. rather than saying, oh, well, science, this whole scientific enterprise is a bust just because you know mm. we, we, we scientists can't can't decide on some particular detail of radiocarbon dating or something yeah. like that yeah. um and i think that where was i <laughs> <laughs> yeah well there I'm... was one other there was one other point that came to mind when you asked your question but it's slipping my mind right okay. now okay yeah so. i mean it is a very broad topic because i think in terms of what I've seen also, like, um, <clears throat> there is, I guess, the the rate at which communication is happening now is that uh, mm. there is a lot of difficulty in terms of filtering information that is maybe corroborated, even within the scientific field. Like, <clears throat> the, the number of publications that exist <laughs> nowadays, like, just on a purely, like, broad level of science mm-hmm. is, like, significantly more than was even 30 years ago and part of that is just because of the internet um but with that like that does complicate things even within the scientific realm because there are a lot of papers that get published uh in the scientific realm that are um that might be great papers and they just get no traction and then there's also the vice versa where there might be papers that get a lot of traction but they actually have no corroboration um, and it's difficult even for scientists now because since there's this, this ease of access to information, um, sorting through what information is like good and taking the time to critically examine each of those um, items of research is a lot more difficult now. Um, so that might be a little bit of the realm of like, you know, how do you deal with that as a data-wide level, but also how do you deal with that like philosophically if you increase more information is that necessarily like a good thing so yeah that is that is a good question i mean i i think of in the social sciences psychology and um i suppose i actually i don't know what counts as a social science these days everyone has <laughs> I mean, different a, yeah. everyone has different opinions right yeah but but there's this general there's there's this thing that's thrown around a lot now like the replication crisis i'm not sure if you've if you've heard of that term before i don't think i've heard of the term like defined explicitly but i've heard it used i mean it basically means here we have all of these papers published in good journals that report purport to be doing good science but people start to go back and as part of a healthy scientific enterprise you try to replicate these studies Mm-hmm. Uh, and it turns out you do the experiments described again, you get different results that don't match up with what the conclusions of the papers mm-hmm. actually were. And I don't actually know the numbers off the top of my head, but there have been estimates that a large proportion of, of, of these scientific experiments in the social sciences just aren't replicatable, which is, which is something that doesn't exactly um, 
raise our confidence in the ability of people to 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 do to to do these things well. Um, but I, again, I think you know that it would be kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater to to say, well, see, this is why social sciences don't you know aren't actually worthwhile mm-hmm. you know pursuits. I think the other thing I was going to talk about was that. There are some disagreements between some philosophers and scientists in like in a way that isn't the way that like philosophers of science go about doing things. You have people who kind of are I don't want to say postmodern, but you have people who kind of have kind of fundamental disagreements with the, the idea of science as traditionally conceived or think mm-hmm. that there are there are a lot of other influences in science that actually completely dominate the field um and like i don't know western colonialism or something mm-hmm. that dominate the field and prevent it from from doing what it's supposed to be doing and those yeah. are that's not as much the sort of fights that a lot of the philosophers of science that i know want to pick yeah i mean um, that's a that's more like philosophers who maybe are interested in the phenomenon of science or something like mm-hmm. that, you know, in kind of a more abstract way. A lot of philosophers of science are very much in the trenches themselves doing some real, you know, science, scientific stuff, but just kind of trying to be more introspective. About yeah, it. I did. I did have a conversation with a philosophy of mathematics, I think. Okay. Um, but um, the way she described it is that there's, I guess, like this growing schism within philosophy mm. as a field in general. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've maybe you have experience of that. She like very vaguely talked about it, but I guess there is like a disagreement on like um, kind of what you're talking about. Like this, like is any of the philosophy that's been done by previous philosophers like <laughs> worthwhile? Like question. Yeah, because um, I guess that's what philosophy majors talk about. Yeah, but, they uh, kind of deconstruct themselves. Yeah, so uh, I guess there's like apparently a schism that's happening <laughs> at the moment within the wider philosophy field <laughs> in general. Um, kind of around that issue, right? Like, um, because, like, philosophers in general, at least canonically what we view as philosophers, typically come from, like, you know, starting from Aristotle, Plato, etc., Greek, and eventually moving to Enlightenment, that area. Like, it's, like, mostly Western thinkers. So, like, that's... Hmm. Hmm. Those... There's, like, a segment of, I guess, subpopulation of philosophers who view that as... Um, I guess not sufficient um hmm. and because of that they dis they disregard most of those philosophers as like being legitimate enough because like <laughs> i don't know yeah whatever the reasons might be yeah yeah i'm i'm still kind of new to the philosophy world mm. or at least the you know the modern philosophy scene so i probably I, I don't think i'll comment much on most of that I think there is another another kind of divide in some ways. So UCI actually has two departments of philosophy. Interesting. Okay. Um, they have the Department of Philosophy, which is, I believe, in the School of Humanities. Um, and then they have the Department of Logic and Philosophy of Science, which is my department um, in the School of Social Sciences. And the difference, I, well, I suppose there are just different emphases, mainly. Um, but the department broke up back maybe around the turn of the 21st century. Um, over, I, I think I think one of the main things is like there were there were there was a small subpopulation of philosophers in the department who wanted to do more naturalistic stuff in their philosophy. So kind of actually, you know, you you integrate your your philosophical questions with the questions that are being asked in other fields. So if you want to learn about 
not what is you know human knowledge or something like that maybe a, a va you know one avenue of study might be well let's go into the lab or let's at least review this the psychological literature and see well what what do our experience with humans um, in the lab show us humans how humans you know get knowledge use knowledge mm. make decisions um, you know compare the values and things like that um, and and so that's that's why this department is in the social school of social sciences I guess they're on friendly terms the departments mm -hmm. um, and they don't they don't step on each other's toes um, but there aren't as many like there there aren't really any medievalists say in the logic and philosophy of science department but there are also aren't many people who do say pure logic or philosophy of physics or anything mm -hmm. like that in the in the philosophy the, the the regular department of philosophy so so that's an that's that, that was an interesting thing to be introduced to um, over the course of my few years in interaction with these departments okay yeah i mean that's that's kind of what i've heard also and it is i mean i'm new to that like that's not really yeah. my area but like um it is important because you are asking kind of the more the more profound difficult questions that are less easy to quantify right yeah um, yeah i think that that's kind of a very good one sentence description of what <laughs> philosophy is if you haven't already, be sure to head over to iTunes, like and subscribe, give us that 5 star rating, and also do the same over at YouTube. We'll be slowly improving our video content there as well. Additionally, make sure to share this podcast with all your friends and family who might be interested. Lastly, if you want to help support us financially, head over to patreon.com slash talkswithtoe. Donating even 25 or 50 cents a month will help us keep the show on the air. And now, head back to the show. Yeah, so I guess you're, we talked a little bit um, through messaging each other that like uh, you are a little bit interested in artificial intelligence, and obviously coming from a computer science background, you you can't really avoid that topic nowadays. Yeah, yeah, that's kind um, of true. Um, most yeah. most people do. Yeah, so I guess what are your views on? Maybe we should start with like what are your views on um, what artificial intelligence actually is? We'll start there, and then maybe we can talk about like what. Um, some of the misconceptions people have about artificial intelligences. Yeah, so the, the UCI's computer science program is really excellent. They have um, they have these depth requirements, which means that you specialize in a particular field, and um, and so I chose to specialize in artificial intelligence. So I've taken I've taken quite a few classes that touch on that or on related topics like probability. Mm -hmm. um, and and I found I've, I I find it really interesting that I managed to do a some people actually can avoid artificial intelligence in a computer science degree. Some schools, smaller schools, might have one or two classes that cover most of those things. Um, so you know I'm very blessed to have been in a department where I could take like five or six courses on on um, artificial intelligence. Um, and I say that in part because. Uh, you know, everyone wants to be an AI futurist these days. And, like, I'm probably not actually qualified to be an AI futurist. Yeah. Um, it would be nice to have a job where if I actually produced anything, I would get fired because, like, my job is to think about what the future is and not what the present is. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah. So, um, yeah, what artificial intelligence is, right? That's yeah. the first the first thing. Yeah. Um, I think there are 
definitely a lot of misconceptions about artificial intelligence. It's hard for me to know what people think of when they think AI. Um, you, I think you do like bioinformatics or something, right? So yeah. you probably have you probably have certain ideas of what of what AI are that that kind of don't fit the typical stereotypes of what people think, like Terminator robots or whatever. Yeah. Um, so a big part of AI these days is learning. Um, the idea that we have a system, we don't give it information right away about what to do, but that instead we we provide it we provide it with information over time and it has to learn to accommodate the information and perform actions or do some computation or something like that. Um, so learning is one part of AI and it's kind of eclipsed all the other parts now. Mm -hmm. But there are other parts of AI. There's there's um, inference, which is basically building really complicated logical systems that will give you, um, you know, that that will that will produce produce answers to questions that 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 you ask it. Um, and you might think of something like a um, some sort of something to aid medical diagnosis. Mm. You have some list of symptoms. You can do inference to come up with a differential diagnosis. Uh, and you know, and 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 give give the most say the most likely causes of those symptoms for right, the patient, yeah. given the patient's history and all those things. Um, and and so one thing to you could do you could do that with learning. Um, but a lot of people still prefer to, especially in in like the professional field, still prefer to use inference systems just because you don't always know what you're getting when you train them train a machine to do something well if you actually are giving you know all the rules that you're giving something then it can do things a lot faster than you can and in more subtle ways than you can but at least there's some transparency you can open right. up the box look at oh okay this is this is sort of the th these are this is the area like if if a patient has a cough this is the direction that that the, the program is running in to find out what to find out what what's going on with the, with the patient, um, and then the other pillar of AI um, is search, um, and so here you would think of like say uh, chess mm. AI where um, I don't play that much chess, but I have played online or uh, I have played chess on the, with a against a mm. computer right, and that that's obviously been a very famous thing, um, and some very the breakthroughs in the public sphere have often been in the terms of playing games like Jeopardy um, or recently Go, mm. um, which no one thought that a computer was ever going to beat Go. And the reason is that the Go board is, what, 19 by 19 or something? Yeah, like it's very that. large. Um, very large. And so what that means is that you have an enormous number of possible moves just any on any given turn. Right. And then... Uh, the way a search algorithm works is that then you play forward a bit. So you simulate if you make a move and then your opponent makes a move, then you make a move, your opponent makes a move, going kind of down this search tree. Um, what, how good of a move will my next move be? And mm -hmm. then you find what the best next move is. Um, with Go, the numbers just explode because, I mean, if you if you think about it, if you have, say, a hundred moves, a hundred possible moves, then your opponent has a hundred possible moves. That's already just to simulate all of those po all of those possible worlds you have, you're dealing with, what, 10,000? 
I think, yeah. possible moves. Um, and then if you want to do it again for for your next move, you have yeah. a million, and and it just it just expands by you know in this exponential way. Chess is easier because there are just a more limited number of moves, mm -hmm. and you have kind of a good idea because you can see kind of what pieces are going to be taken or in danger or or whatever. There's there are clearer ways of rating how good a particular board looks. Mm -hmm. So the the best case scenario in, in a game like tic tac toe, you can literally just play to the end of the game. Um, that it take like you know an hour to write an AI that that would actually play through the end of the game, and then always choose for sure the best move. Yeah. With chess, you have good estimation. You can say the the board four moves away. If I make this move, is looks really good for me in a quantifiable way. Mm. Um, with Go, it's actually a lot less clear because you know you just it. So so it was really impressive that they were able to Google was able to come up with an AI that could at least beat the best Go player some of the time. Um, but that's kind of the other one. There you have, you're basically just going through a ton of different possible universes, basically, and finding the route to the best one. Sort of like, um, what is it, Doctor Strange? In, yeah, yeah. In the Avengers, yeah. Yeah. So, so those are kind of the three things that make up the world of AI mm -hmm. right now. Um, yeah, what, I mean, that's definitely pretty much my understanding of it, too. And, like, I think, at least in the healthcare field, a lot of that mm -hmm. is, like, what you were talking about, like how do you use information to determine the best um, clinical outcomes, yeah. best clinical decisions. Um, there's a lot of looking at what is, how do you create clinical support decisions using artificial intelligence, hmm. and that's like hmm. a multi-tiered system, right? Hmm. Like you have, A, you have a data collection system, like how do you identify what data is relevant, and then from that data, how do you utilize that relevant to uh, enable a machine to pick out the trends right and like yeah out the decisions um but like there's also i guess the um there is a lot of that that press about like the oh ai is gonna like you know take over <laughs> x y or z you know right um i mean the self-driving car one is like the most uh it's the highest profile area but i think a lot yeah. of people are kind of jumping the gun or in my opinion are jumping the gun on um, what self-driving cars mean and what they're actually capable of now because um, I mean recently like Tesla's had a lot of lawsuits because of just like crashes related to AI self-driving right and that's like if you're in the field of like computer science like that's not really that surprising to you right no it's really not um, yeah I don't know what your opinions yeah. on that are have you have you taken the so there is a self-driving car service operating in Irvine, Irvine right now you I've can, seen it yeah you, the, you can actually sign up for free um and get rides all around Irvine, which is really cool. I don't know if I'm allowed to say the name on 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 <laughs> on, on air, but um, yeah. but but it's it's pretty cool. And I've done that. They it kind of they had a kind of a shift last month to a different company, but it's the same kind of program. Mm -hmm. And I've been a part of both of those. And it's cool to see the software improving over the times that you're running. It's also a little bit scary to think, well, before there were these cars out on the road with this less great software mm -hmm. um and and so that was really my first experience with self-driving cars i think that i always would joke with the drivers because obviously these cars still had drivers um that i know too much about computer vision to trust um to trust a self-driving car but mm -hmm. yet here i am because i'm just attracted to the thrill yeah um i think that in many ways that's really true it really surprises me 
vision is a really hard problem. I've I've done a little bit of research with a professor who does in the cognitive science world who mm -hmm. does vision research and three three dimensional reconstruction of scenes, and that's really one of the big problems. I think that on the surface, if you have a program that can pick out all of the objects in a picture of a table mm -hmm. or something like that. That's really cool. It's not what people typically think of as AI, I think, but it's actually a problem we haven't solved yet, mm. which is kind of remarkable given how much money and computational power we're throwing at it. Um, and so I, I think that you know, before, before people worry about AI taking over, you have to worry about computers actually being able to do things that humans just kind of take for granted. Mm. Um, Self-driving cars are a good example because they're, I suppose, they're, they're out there. They're big now. Um, and a lot of people work in the transportation industry. And I suppose when people talk about AI taking over, they generally don't mean the sort of Terminator or war games taking over the nuclear launch codes or something mm. like that, but they mean taking over an industry and kicking out all of the, all of the workers. And I suppose that I suppose that that probably is in the future. To what extent that's in the future, I'm not sure, because I think in some ways we underestimate how nice it is to interact with humans and how people really might not be willing to move to a society where you just don't interact with humans anymore, mm. which is kind of what a society where the transportation and service industries are all taken over by robots mm -hmm. is like in some ways. I worked at a startup that was doing um, things with uh, sort of in the vein of Amazon Go. Okay. You automate stores. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of. You, you track people when they walk in, what they pick up when they go through the store. You charge them when they walk out, but you don't. they don't need to go through like a complicated checkout process or anything like that. Sort of like a grab and go sort of idea. I haven't been to the Amazon Go stores, but um, I hear that they're kind of becoming a staple of the the Seattle area, yeah. at the very least, um, where, you know, you just kind of, oh, I need some bread. I'll just go down to the Amazon Go store and pick mm -hmm. it up. Um, and so that's another area that I think is gain. It's a little bit still on cutting edge, where cars are almost blasé now. Mm -hmm. um, but another area where probably th that there will be a lot of break-in in that industry over the next few years. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And like the, <clears throat> sorry, the, um, it'll be interesting to see because I think that kind of gets into the question of like, well, at, at what point is integrating like these systems like overdoing it? <laughs> um, yeah. Because the human element is always the element we know the least about, right? Like mm. it's, it's the aspect about um, the universe that we kind of don't understand at all and like I can safely say that as like someone working in just the genetic side of things and it's just like <clears throat> the amount that we know about even the, the genetics is just like very minimal <laughs> yeah to be quite frank yeah. like even though we've sequenced the human genome <clears throat> and like we've done it a lot of times at this point like every time we sequence a new genome there's another aspect that we just do not understand about it yeah. uh, and statistically it's just not 
like there's just there's too much variance it's like <laughs> yeah yeah and i mean even stepping out of the the genetic side which i think it is interesting to what extent genetics plays a role in who we are um and there are lots of philosophical implications i suppose to to that sort of discussion um but into say the world of the mind conceived less reductionistically there's a lot we don't mm-hmm. we don't really know you know um and and it, it is interesting um but i suppose if you think that humans taken as a large taken as a large community act in predictable ways you know kind of increasing your sample size to decrease your variance um then maybe you can you can kind of predict what people will do when you introduce some new thing into mm-hmm. society but of course that gets into scary stuff too because we don't necessarily want the government to be treating us as a sort of a solved problem say yeah or a corporation to be treating us as a solved problem um where it's very predictable we say we introduce this tax and people quit smoking or quit driving or something like that or you know we introduce this mm-hmm. these advertisements and people buy more of our products like in some ways it's kind of scary to me um even though i don't really think about my data very much for for someone with the background that i have which actually i my one of my early interests in the world of technology was in security and privacy. Mm, yeah. um, I mean, the Edward Snowden leaks were back when I was er, fairly early on in high school. Yeah. And, you know, kind of a very influential part of my development and like, oh, yes, I want to do computer science. I want to work in the field of technology. What do I want to do? And for a long time, I thought that that both communication systems and by extension, sort of the security and privacy of these communication systems was where I wanted to go. Um, and so you would think with all of that background, I would be really skeptical about where I put my data mm-hmm. and I would be using DuckDuckGo and I would, yeah. I would, you know, whatever. But actually I'm, I'm, really, I'm really normal in most ways where I, I still use Google, I still use Chrome. Yeah. Um, just because of the convenience factor that it provides. Yeah, it, that's a, I mean, that's the most relevant one, I think. And I think in terms of where things are heading now, like that topic is probably at the forefront because more or less that is how a lot of the big companies are using people's data as like a a deterministic way to you know predict whether or not people will buy a product or b product you know um and then there is also now this ongoing discussion at least in the united states of like well is that a problem that should be solved by government or can it be solved by government at all like um is it even a problem like (laughs) so like there's there's a lot of different views on that i think yeah yeah, like you said like i know i have worked at as a defense contractor for Mm. you know a while but like so like i don't have like any like secret clearance or anything like that like that's a whole nother story otherwise i wouldn't be able to talk about this (laughs) but like even even in that like you know the snowden leaks did fundamentally change how computer scientists had to approach um just encryption decryption that type of stuff because like um, it showed that even at the point where computer science was at that time, um, that the government had already had, you know, tools that people were unaware of to be able to break through certain encryption algorithms. Like I think <clears throat> now it's like SHA two fifty six or something like that. Like some like there's like a bunch of encryption algorithms and like how do you encrypt things where 
it would take not like you could feasibly decrypt it but the time it would take to decrypt it would mm. be like a- astronomical where it's like unfeasible right yeah um but part of the big things that the snowden links also leaked out probably got less press attention was that there was a bunch of these algorithms that were used at the time that people assumed um were capable of stopping people in a sufficient amount of time where it wouldn't be like, yeah. feasible right but those leaks show that the government actually had the ability to break through those encryptions yeah. In, yeah. in a feasible time. Yeah. So I mean, some of them are based on math where you you have some guarantees. Um, and as long as quantum computing doesn't take off, which is a whole other issue that I'm not qualified to talk about, <laughs> yeah. you know, like like there's less worry. Um, but there there really are. I think. That's that's really interesting hearing about it from from you know the side of someone who's actually worked in the in the government rather than just listen someone who who was a high schooler listening to <laughs> you know all of the cool Guardian reporters who were who were publishing and you know Der Spiegel and stuff who were publishing yeah all of these these absolutely some of them just really crazy things um, about how they would go in the government would go in and um, introduce a introduce bugs into software that handle encryption and decryption um, or even publish algorithms that on the surface looked like they were good math but secretly were, were absolutely terrible at doing what they were supposed to be doing in the context of providing security mm-hmm. um, and I mean and that's not even the whole like secretly irradiating the Cubans and stuff like that you know <laughs> but um but I, I I'm really glad that I didn't end up as a conspiracy theorist just because of like the Snowden leaks were something that I think on especially on an impressionable person an impressionable youth really could very easily lead someone down the road of being a conspiracy theorist if if you actually thought long and hard enough about mm-hmm. The implications of the government doing these sorts of things um but yeah yeah and there's a whole iranian like nuclear oh yeah system thing that was like stuck was that stuxnet or stuxnet was a part of it okay i mean it was a i think semantic which is like a cyber security mm-hmm. company they released like a full report about it like after hmm after it all happened but mm-hmm. for those who are listening and don't know um, <laughs> Uh, the reason Iran, Ar- Iranian nuclear missiles don't exist is basically because of this incredibly elaborate computer worm that took, I think, over three years from like start to finish to work. But they basically like snuck, like the way they snuck it is like one part of the story, like into the the Iranian nuclear facility, right? Because this is not something that's connected to the internet, right? It's, so there's actually no way, yeah, to hack in remotely to yeah. these systems. Um, but it was like on so many levels, it was just like the way it was executed was ridiculous. Because there's basically when you're creating um, nuclear material, mm-hmm. um, you have to centrifuge the uranium, mm-hmm. um, yeah, at a very precise speed, at a very precise time, and like mm-hmm. temperature, all that stuff. And you have these nuclear centrifuges that do that. Um, so when these centrifuges are spinning, like you need sensors to record like what all that stuff is in order to modulate it so that it correctly purifies mm-hmm. the uranium. Mm-hmm. Um, so like there's a grade where you purify uranium for like nuclear power, and then there's a grade kind of above it for like nuclear weapons. So like most people had known that Iran was like trying to 
get to the point where they can make nuclear weapons. So I guess this worm was somehow they got it onto the system in a way where it would delete itself so that you would never know that it got onto the system. Mm-hmm. And it used two or three Windows operating system bugs that no one even knew existed mm-hmm. at that point um, to get into the system to get like root access privilege. Um, access these sensors and basically make it seem like the centrifuges were spinning at the speed they were supposed to. So when you're looking at the system on the computer system, it literally looks correctly. And then it would randomly speed up and slow down these centrifuges until they broke. And eventually every single like centrifuge in that entire Iranian system just like shut down and they had no idea how. Because on their system, it told the computers that it was perfectly normal. Yeah. And then it just completely wiped the entire like nuclear processing facility and then like terminated itself also so like they had no idea like yeah what happened yeah and just just thinking about the like kind of the level of the people who were working on it like there's so much money even for more legitimate areas and you've worked in the defense industry so you know um for people in college for example in the fields like what what we're in like there there's so much money in the defense industry they just want to they want to pick up all the bright the brightest people mm-hmm. and i suppose the the sort of people who are writing stuxnet are are kind of on the next level of like they they probably get 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 kidnapped and and sent to the black site and yeah. forced to know but um <laughs> i i kind but of have the, in black I, sites, I, yeah. I have the oh like yeah yeah maybe maybe by uh <laughs> maybe by their own by their own choosing at least somewhat it, it's funny this actually this i'm getting a very joe rogan vibe from the way that this conversation has gone and now <laughs> we're like con- this is the, the, the conspiracy yeah. theories yeah i mean man the government is not good at doing a lot of things but when it comes <laughs> to the defense like yeah. There are aspects about defense that are pretty amazing. Like, yeah. Because um, even the stuff that are starting mm. to be declassified, because like the way declassification works, mm. it's like usually like after 50 years, things get declassified, um, as long as it's still not considered sensitive. Um, but even the stuff that have been declassified since the end of the Cold War are just like ridiculous. Like, when we were flying, like, uh, basically reconnaissance missions over the Soviet Union, like, back then there wasn't like internet. So, like, how mm. do you take a camera that's in like a satellite above earth that has film like physical film Hmm. how do you get that information back to the ground in an efficient manner that like that uh and in a timely manner where people who are generals can actually like like make decisions on a worldwide basis like of that information so actually like i think it was lockheed martin okay um this is like since been declassified i think it was called project corona so like Hmm. The way they figured out how to do it is they they sent these satellites up into space. The satellite would fly over the Soviet Union, take these pictures on film, and then at a predetermined time, they would drop the canister physically from the satellite. And as the canister was falling, they would have a jet fly by and like hook the canister as it was falling. Like hook its parachute or something? Hook its parachute, grab the canister, fly it to DC, and the entire thing took like an hour. Wow. Or something like something ridiculous. I don't know if it was in an hour, but like it was yeah. just like that was the technology that we had back then, back in like yeah. the seventies or eighties. So like, who knows what we have now? <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> but now we can get stuff from Pluto to Earth. 
in a matter of hours. Yeah. And high def, high def pictures too. Yeah. So it's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nice. Well, I think we've been talking for quite a while. We've hit a lot of topics. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, do you have any other last thoughts about philosophy, um, <laughs> artificial intelligence? Uh, no. I mean, I think that I think that the most interesting stuff, really, at the end of the day, is the stuff that does the basics. If that makes sense, we still we still struggle with a lot of we we we're we're getting better at producing specialized systems that do specialized things. Like uh, in the world of bioinformatics, there's some amazing stuff involving protein, whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't even I I that's one thing I have not touched at all. Um, and maybe if I wanted to make money in the tech field, I should have touched it more. Um, but since I'm a philosopher, I don't, I don't need to worry about that. <laughs> um, but, but in terms of general artificial intelligence, which is mostly what people think of when they hear artificial intelligence, you know, the actual robots that can, or, or what systems that can have hold conversations with humans at a typical level, you know, there's, we're, we still have so far to go Yeah, and it's not a matter of throwing more computational power at it, I don't think, because if that that was all that it was, then Amazon would have all like Alexa would work a lot better mm-hmm. than Alexa. Oh, I didn't mean to. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, there was an Alexa yeah. answer, but yeah, it's okay. Um, you know, or <laughs> Amazon or Google would have solved would have solved the problem. Um, and so one thing that over the course of my time doing intelligence intelligent systems related stuff, I've kind of grown in my affinity towards looking to the natural sciences to give us information about what where we need to go. So part of that is looking at the brain or looking at the mind in the more abstract sense in cognitive yeah. science. Um, but also some of the stuff that I do in philosophy, I think really, for me, right, so I, I my, when I say what I do in philosophy, I mean I'm actually running simulations right now. Um, which is a weird thing for philosophers to do, mm-hmm. but it's um, something that I got introduced to through this department, and it's actually great as a person trained in software engineering. I can code up these simulations, try to get them as efficient as possible, and do things that that people who aren't software engineers try try to answer questions or clarify things um, that people who aren't software engineers have uh, uh, haven't been able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the, the sorts of simulation work that I'm doing now, I think, to me, does ultimately feed back into the question of, say, what is the nature of information processing in, in nature, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or just because, turns out, bacteria can send signals to each other and coordinate their actions. Mm-hmm. You know, animals, we've known for a long time, anim- animals and mammals and stuff like that can do it. Um, but even lower lower things than than you know primates and stuff yeah. like that still send signals. Birds send fairly sometimes complex signals, um, which really approximate little mini languages. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so those are some of the questions that I've I've started to investigate now: um, logic and information processing in systems that we don't think of as intelligent in the human sense. Yeah. Um, but still, but which still are doing things that very complex, but like very complex that we yeah. don't have computer. We don't have computers that have that do lifelike mm. imitation of things. You know, it's yeah. all very artificial still. And I want to see 
the natural sciences, the biological sciences, and the cognitive sciences kind of pushing into the AI world more um, because I think mm -hmm. it might be cool what, what we can do, even if we yeah. never get to. I'm kind of a skeptic about general intelligence. Yeah. Um, but, but nonetheless, I think that for some specialized things like vision, what better way to learn how to do computer vision than studying the visual cortex in the brain? It seems to me, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a whole other thing. It's like we have no idea about the brain. The brain is probably the one system that yeah. we have the least amount of information about in the human body. Um, like we don't even know how memory works. Really. Yeah, there's like yeah, there's, there's a lot of there, theories, there, right? there are theories. Yeah, but yeah, but that's another thing. Is like just because yeah. there are theories doesn't mean that any of them, any of them really hit on what needs to be hit on. Yeah, but and even with technologies like MRI, we still don't know anything. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, we have more and more data. Mm -hmm. I think that I've been pretty impressed. I've gone to some, you know, talks. The cognitive science department here does a lot of stuff in, in that. And I've gone to talks where I've been pretty impressed with kind of the level of detail that goes into a particular study on the brain, but also the amount of data we kind of have. And yet then you pull out one tiny bit of information. This, the talk I went to recently was on the selection, like say you have you're focused on one thing and something off in the corner of your eye catches your attention because it's a flash of light or something. There are circuits in the brain that do those sorts of comparison between two points in your visual field and determine which one is more important or which, you know, basically yeah. ultimately are sending signals like, hey, something something's going on over here. And we actually have a little bit more information now about that one very small specific thing that the visual system does. Hmm. Um, but when you think about how much we need to learn, we have, we still have a long way to, we still have a long way to go. That we do. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> we do indeed have a lot to go. Yeah. Well, it's been great talking with yeah, you. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you for um, having me on. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for taking the time and, you know, the early morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, yeah. Do you have any, uh, places where people can find you maybe your work eventually um i don't know if you want to um, give that out you don't have to but. yeah um i suppose these days i guess my linkedin is the place that i maintain the most um if i move into philosophy that's not ultimately going to be my home i don't think All right you'll um, probably be in some journal but <laughs> yeah true um philosophers i was just talking with one of my friends last night they have places that they go like academia.edu and stuff like mm -hmm. that where you know um but my linkedin right now so i mean i suppose my name will be somewhere so jack van drunen i go by jack um my full name is jacob okay i go by jack so cool. so yeah just uh I, and i think if you google you'll find you'd find stuff yeah. yeah yep all right thank you guys for tuning in have a good day <laughs> be sure to like and subscribe to talks with toe on spotify and also give us that five star rating on itunes also, be sure to go over to YouTube and subscribe to Talks with Toe. Talks with Toe is written and produced by Chris Toe.